This week, it's another double Parsha, Tazria and Mitzorah. And I think that these portions in the middle of Leviticus, they are somewhat difficult portions for us to grapple with. Of course, Leviticus talks a lot about sacrifices. And as we know, sacrifices are something that we don't abide by today. We don't actually do it today. And the whole idea of sacrifices is somewhat foreign to us. But in addition, last week at the end of the parasha, we learned about all the laws of kosher. And those do apply to us, but they're still somewhat mysterious. There's there's certain foods, certain animals that are quote-unquote holy. And you eat them and you become holy. And there's other animals that are not holy, are impure, and you eat them and you become impure. And this, this whole thing doesn't really seem to resonate with us very much. And this week's parashas talk about uh, various laws of purity and impurity. And again, that whole thing is seem like a, it's like a locked uh, enigma where there's this idea that there's this spiritual realm within us that can become pure or impure. And of course, there's the laws of tsara'as, this uh, magical leprosy. Someone does a sin and suddenly they get splotches all over their skin uh, or all over their clothing and the garments and the houses. So I want to think of an idea uh, that we could maybe use to explain all of these mitzvos. And I think just off the top, it's important for us to stress that many times throughout history, there has been a, a notion that was advanced that these are ideas and mitzvos that are there to promote cleanliness, health, hygiene, a way of ensuring that there's no spread of contagious diseases. And I think that is a mistake. For example... We know that the laws of Tsaras apply only when part of the body is afflicted with Tsaras and part of the body is not afflicted with Tsaras. If you have an enti- a person who is entirely covered with Tsaras with this magical leprosy, they don't need to be quarantined. So if it's about preventing outbreaks of contagion, then of course, if someone is entirely covered in saras, then all the more so you'd be worried about that. Just one example. The days of kosher, people maybe thought that, okay, these are animals that are healthier and therefore it's uh, appropriate or it's worthwhile to eat them and not eat the the non-healthy ones, which are not kosher. That's an idea that's been proposed. And I think that there is kind of one unifying thought that really could give us an insight a little bit into bringing these ideas a little bit closer to our understanding. So the first mitzvah, this week's parasha, is the mitzvah of a woman who has a child, what's called a yoledas. A woman has a child, a boy or a girl, she becomes impure for a certain amount of time, depends upon what kind of child, a boy or a girl. That's the beginning of this week's parasha. And of course, this seems to be a very bizarre idea, like it's impurity, how could that result from something very pure, bringing a soul to the world? It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a perfect thing. It's a lofty, it's a holy, it's a worthwhile thing. What is this idea that bringing a child into this world that results in impurity? Again, if we were thinking impurity as a really bad, dark thing, doesn't seem to jive with the very first time we're told about impurity, a woman having a baby. In addition, there's another aspect of, of purity and impurity that seems to be counterintuitive. 
for the majority of the laws of purity and impurity, they apply only to Jews. And the question is, if purity is about cleanliness, uh, about hygiene, or any one of those other misconceptions, why would it apply to Jews only? Another question we can maybe pose. We know that the laws, uh, that the outbreak of Tsaras happens primarily as a result of Lashon Hara, of evil talk, of gossip. Well, why does it not apply today? How come today, if I speak evil talk to someone else, right away, magical leprosy should splotch up all over me? Are, are, are we suggesting, perhaps, that people don't speak Lashon Hara today? No, we're not suggesting that. If Saras is really connected to Lashon Hara, it should be prevalent today. And just, I think, more broadly speaking, there's about 16% of the Talmud, including the Mishnah, is related to laws of purity and impurity. And the overwhelming majority of them do not apply at all today. And I think it's just an interesting thought experiment to say, like, there's such vast swaths of the Torah the Torah goes in so much detail about the Talmud elaborates with such comprehensive treatment and somehow they're not applying today. So what do we make of that? So as a general rule, the commentaries seem to kind of speak and maybe each one with their own style, but they, they come to a consensus about what this idea of purity and impurity is. The Sefer HaChinuch, which is the book, uh, the 13th century book that talks about the mitzvahs of the Torah, lists all such 13 in the order that they appear in the Torah, and gives a little bit of background and meaning and a few of the laws of every given mitzvah. And he explains the idea of tumma, the idea of impurity, as being an, a void, being the absence of holiness. And specifically, in a place, in a vessel, where holiness is possible, specifically there where there's a lack of holiness, that is what tumma is. So it's not it's not being dirty. Impurity is, is not synonymous with being dirty. It's being synonymous with a vessel, a receptacle of holiness that was just stripped of its holiness. And of course, again, these are still hard ideas, but we're trying to bring them a little closer to our understanding. So for example, the holiest thing that exists in our world is a human soul. And the Talmud explains that a human soul is like an angel. And the uh, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato in Path of the Just writes it's even greater than an angel. It's more pure than an angel. Now, of course, what these mean, things mean, it's hard for us to understand. But within each, every, in every human, there's something very, very holy. And you have a mother, and she's expecting a baby. And if you were to kind of look at her with a microscope, but a spiritual microscope, you'd see not one soul, but two souls. Because there's her soul, and then there's the baby's soul. And as a result of the birth, suddenly... She's stripped of one soul. She only has one left. The original amazing bastion of holiness that she had within her is now reduced in half. That is impurity. Of course, that's not dirtiness. It just means that there was holiness and that the holiness was taken in a way. Which, which, again, the idea that I want to pull out from this is that holiness and Impurity are really linked together. Only in a place where there can be holiness can there be impurity. Maybe the way of understanding is is that the more spiritually acute and sensitive a person is, the more these minor blemishes of impurity, 
these minor, minor reductions of purity are evident. Perhaps we could connect this to the idea found a little later on in the book of Leviticus. Moshe is preparing the Jewish people for going into, going into the land of Israel, and he tells them that the land of Israel has a spiritual sensitivity. And it says that the, the Canaanites who lived in the land, the reason why they're going to be expelled from the land is not because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness. And, and it goes as far as to say that the land, the land itself has a spiritual sensitivity to sin and it will expel all those who live within it and don't abide by its standards of holiness, which is an incredible idea that the land itself will vomit out any people that don't stand by a certain spiritual uh, stature. And Rashi there explains, it says, imagine you have a, a, a prince, and the prince is used to eating very refined foods. And because they have such a very fine palate, if there's something slightly wrong with whatever they're consuming, it bothers them, and they may vomit it, because they're so used to eating things that are so perfect. Whereas you have a peasant that used to eating leftovers and yesterday's meals and maybe it's not so fresh and it's not so clean, their stomach has a kind of a stronger constitution and they're able to absorb more things. And similarly, if you look at, you know, what animals eat, animals eat raw meat, they eat food that's rotten, that, that, that us, because we're holier than animals, so to speak, we are more sensitive and therefore we cannot handle, so to speak, the things that are less than perfect, or at least within the realm, within the range of perfect. My father would go to uh, India to do business, and he said he couldn't drink the water. You drink the water in India, you'll start throwing up because you have a certain standard. Even though these are standard issue humans, but they grew up in it, and they're used to it, and they can handle it. You got to import your all your water, drink only bottled water. I remember he would, he would bring Coca-Cola. And I remember hearing, I don't know if this was something they told kids to make them just bewildered, or maybe it was really true, but he would say that he would brush his teeth with Coca-Cola, which seems to, which seems to be counterproductive. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a perfect example. Because we kind of have a more sensitive stomach, we can handle what they can handle, no problem. Similarly, the land of Israel it has like a sensitivity, as a spiritual stomach, and it will vomit out anyone that's not, or any nation that for a significant amount of time does not abide by its standards. The, the city that's been captured, recaptured more often than any other city in history is Jerusalem. You kind of have to wonder, like, why does the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, why does it, ha- why does it change hands so many times? And here Leviticus, we find the answer, that because the land itself never lost its spiritual sensitivity, the people who live there have to live by a higher standard. And therefore, if we're worthy of it, if whatever land, whatever people's there was worthy of it, they'll be able to have a certain degree of continuity. Otherwise, they'll be kicked out. Next people will be brought in in their stead. Another way of understanding this idea is if you have a garment made of like fine silk or fine cotton, and there's a slight little blemish in it. It's a little, slightly dirty. If someone has a beautiful tie, but there's a little bit of a stain there, like that really stands out. If someone has a garment made out of sack or sackcloth, it doesn't really matter. 
And therefore, the more refined the, th- the thing is, the more the blemishes are really going to stand out. I had another thing, thought about this last night. My, my father used to do, he used to be a diamond dealer. He used to have these loops and they would put the diamond on your finger like this and you pick up your glasses and you take this magnifying glass, this loop, and you look at it and you examine it from every angle. What other rock do you take at it? Do you look at, take at a rock and look at it and examine it and pull out this amazing magnifying glass that makes it a hundred times larger and examine it under the right light to look at the, only the diamond, only something which is so valuable and precious and beautiful. Only then do you look at the blemishes. That's what impurity is. Specifically something that's holy. Specifically something that can be amazingly valuable. Then we look at what's slightly wrong. That is impurity. There is no impurity in a regular rock, a regular limestone. There's no impurity. The whole thing's impure. Only when it's a diamond, when it's something that's so scintillating, so beautiful, then we look at the impurities. And then the impurities really matter. So in the times of the temple, in the times where people were much more spiritually elevated then these laws would be exhibit themselves. Then the laws of Tsaras, when someone was so refined, but they made one mistake, then that stands out. And therefore, these laws were told, it applies to the Jewish people. We have a certain capacity for spirituality that exceeds anyone else in the world. We're direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, as a result, when we're in our heightened status of holiness, these laws of purity apply. Now, today, no one gets Lashon because today the, the, there's been a devolvement in the spiritual standing of our nation and of all individuals, and therefore these things don't apply so much. And we hope to bring them back maybe when our nation has a renaissance uh, again. But as a general rule, I think it's a nice way of, of understanding this, that the more holy we get, specifically, that's when we have to make sure that we're also eliminating all the, the spiritual blemishes. And I think this applies to us kind of in a, in a more rele- relevant way. Every step that we upgrade ourselves in, in any area of holiness, we have to make sure that the parallel steps that in all parallel areas of our lives, we're also upgrading. So someone takes one step, they study more Torah, they have to realize that what's demanded from them, it's not just you're increasing your knowledge of Torah, but you're staying the same, you have to uplift yourself. You have to change who you are fundamentally. And therefore, you have to become a little bit more humble. And you have to become a little bit more charitable and a little bit more kind and a little bit more patient because you you have to change collectively as a person and you have to upgrade yourself. And therefore, in each step should be should be, should be be brought together with the parallel steps in all other areas of life. I want to read uh, a Rambam. Uh, in chapter 5 of the laws of Yesode HaTorah, the foundations of Torah. This chapter deals with the idea of Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. As a general rule, that applies to martyrdom. When someone is told, okay, your religion, or I put a bullet in your head, that's the classical case of, of Kiddush Hashem, and the halacha is that, of course, you have to stand up for what you believe, even if it means giving up your life. And he goes through all the details of those laws. And at the end, he talks about other areas of sanctification of God's name versus desecration of God's name. And he he gives this example. He says, if there's a man who is great in Torah and distinguished in piety, and then if he does something that's not befitting of his stature, for example, even even though they're not sins, but if they're not befitting his stature the way he is, 
it's considered a desecration of God's name. So he gives a few, few examples. He says, someone buys something, but doesn't pay on time. The guy has to nag him to pay up the invoice. Is it something technically wrong? No, but it's not refined. And someone who's a great Torah scholar does that, that, that that's a, a desecration of God's name. One example. Second example. Or he does, spends a lot of time in laughing or eating and drinking with simpletons. Is there something technically wrong with that? No. But someone of that stature shouldn't be spending too much time eating, drinking, gossiping, hanging out with uh, people who are, who are simpletons, who are ignoramuses, who are not uh, spiritually advanced. Or, a third example, when he speaks to people, it's not pleasantly. He doesn't greet them with a pleasant countenance. He's, he's like an angry, cantankerous person. And then he adds, in degree to the greatness of the scholar has to be the amount that he is fastidious with himself to do above and beyond the call of duty. And th- this is exactly the point, I think, that we're learning here in general in, in Leviticus. Our nation, where we're, we're being told, like the, the charge of our nation, the, the mission statement of our nation is to be God's ambassadors in this world. To be mamleches, kohanim, v'goy kadosh, that's what we're told at Sinai, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? It means that just like if there is a clergyman, there's only one clergyman or two for a hundred constituents. Well, we're about 0.2% of the world. Like we're the world's clergymen. We're, we're supposed to be the world's consciousness. We're supposed to be the ones or the moral leaders of, of the nation. And therefore, after we're told that, we read Leviticus. And Leviticus talks about all these things that don't make sense to our mind today. But we have to understand the context in which they're conveyed. They're conveyed in the context of a nation that's really fulfilling its mission of being God's people in the world. Then, when we are truly those diamonds, then all these laws of imperfections suddenly creep up. And today, I think just on, on a relevant level, we have to realize that whatever it is that we accomplish in our lives, in our spiritual advancement, we have to make sure that we don't leave aspects of our persona behind. We have to lift all aspects of our behavior, of our character, of the way we relate to other people, of our demeanor, all that has to grow together because we're trying to upgrade the stature of who we are, of being a little bit more like a soul and as a result, we too maybe will merit to become a sanctification of God's name, a light unto the nations.